Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Am I the only one hearing that heavenly like... Is, is, is everyone else hearing that too? Okay, I, uh, shucks, I thought it was like, what'd you say? <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Do you guys like the blinds, by the way? Is it nice having a little bit of like, yeah, seriously, some sunlight in here? It's supposed to feel like a cave when we're singing, because you can't see each other and you're not self-conscious, but when, when it's uh, the teaching time, it's nice to have a little natural light in here. On February 20, 1547, Edward VI became the King of England. He was only nine years old. And despite his brief time ruling and his limited power when he was ruling, um, during his time of King of England, Protestant theology kind of blew up in England. It began to really spread in large part, that was because of a man named Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, and he had a profound influence on Edward. Uh, the king wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He was a teenager and a preteen, essentially, his whole time of ruling. Um, but it is documented that he read his Bible every day and that he enjoyed listening to sermons. But unfortunately, King Edward died at 15 years old. And soon after he died, Mary, his older half-sister, took over of Queen of, as Queen of England. And she made it her personal agenda to basically undo everything that Edward had done to make sure that this biblical theology flourishes in England. And she did this Violently, It brought, the, at the time, the corrupt Roman Catholic Church back into power, and she became known as Bloody Mary. And under her watch, over 300 people were executed for their faith in Christ and their loyalty to the tenets of Protestant theology. One of the people who was killed for his faith was Thomas Cranmer. First, he was imprisoned. Then he was put in solitary confinement. Then he was tortured. Then he was essentially, we could say, he was brainwashed. Until finally he was compelled to write out a renouncement of his faith. He denied Christ in our understanding of salvation through the Protestant tenets of faith. And even after denying his faith, he was to be put, put to death. Probably more gently, though, if he agreed to do so publicly. So they gave him a chance to deny his faith publicly. And they were going to do this, I think it was on a Wednesday, at a large public church gathering in Oxford. And so before he went in there and gave his statement, saying, I no longer believe in the tenets of this faith, essentially denying Christ as his Savior, he had to write out the statement so that the authorities knew exactly what he was going to say. They wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to bash the Queen of England. They wanted to make sure he wasn't going to bash um, the, the Roman Catholic Church. And so they just wanted to read it beforehand. So he wrote out a speech and he gave it to them. It was approved. And on March 21, 1556, he was led into a packed church. 
led up the center aisle to the pulpit. And he stood behind the pulpit and he began to speak. And at first he stayed with the script. And everybody was happy. But much to the rage of the authorities, he soon went off script. In fact, he ended by taking back his denial of the faith. And then he said, and because it was this right hand that wrote out that denial, because this instrument was used for that evil, this will go in the flames first when you burn me for my faith. And then he called the corrupt pope an enemy of Christ. And the authorities, imagine this, I mean, this really happened, in that moment, in that packed church, rushed to the pulpit, dragged him from behind the pulpit, dragged him out the church, dragged him to where the, the bad version of execution was to happen, tied him to the stake and lit the match. And true to his word, he stretched out his right hand and put it into the flame first. And then he quoted Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian, for the Christian faith. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Thomas Cranmer was burned at the stake. And it's actually been documented that in the ashes, after he was burned at the stake, they found his heart. And it was unsinged by the flames. Now the Roman Catholic Church had to think fast, so they said it's probably because his heart was pure evil or it's probably some weird medical condition, but I'm guessing there was another explanation. What puts that type of spiritual steel in someone's spine? To look at your right hand and to say, this is the hand that I use to deny Jesus, and because of that, when I'm burned, for taking that back, this will burn first. What possesses a person to do that? Barbara Brown Taylor says what the world needs from the church right now is to see a community of people who are experiencing a rewilding of their hearts for God. And perhaps what we need most in the world right now is more people with steely spines and gentle demeanors and fervent hearts for Christ. And today is part two of our series, Fervent in Spirit. And if you missed the first one, we covered some important things, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. There's multiple ways that you can do that. We do have a podcast where Pastor Al puts all the sermons on a podcast every week. Um, you can just probably search Southside Worcester, and you'll find that on iTunes or Spotify. Um, you can also go to our website and listen to the messages. You can go back to the video from last week on Facebook and watch it as well. But I would encourage you to go back and listen to that teaching. There's some foundational things that will be helpful for this teaching as well. This phrase, fervent in spirit, comes from Romans 12:11, where Paul says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. And we found out last week that the, the Greek word for fervent actually means boiling. So the picture is that of a human being who in the furnace of their soul is boiling with passion and affection for Jesus Christ. 
And one of the key takeaways from last week is that this is actually a paradox. Being fervent in spirit is actually a paradox. And the statement that's in your notes, if you grabbed a bulletin, is true spiritual fervency is when your heart is made to boil with passion for Christ through Scripture while simultaneously being more settled and at rest in Christ. This is a paradox. Two things happening simultaneously that don't make sense. They're, they're like opposite, and yet they're happening at the same time. And we're boiling and resting in Christ. This is a lot like, um, I think of another martyr named Polycarp, who, oh, this is really dangerous. I'm going to go off memory here. I didn't research this, um, so have some grace. Um, Polycarp, Polycarp was, I think he was the bishop at Smyrna. I'm pretty sure he was. He was discipled by John, pretty good person to be discipled by, someone who is in Jesus' inner circle. Um, and he was killed for his faith in Christ. And I, if I'm remembering, you can Google this and tell me later if I'm wrong. If I'm remembering this right, the, the soldiers that went to his house and got him, the Roman soldiers, were trying to talk him out of doing this. Like, just deny the faith. That's all you have to do. You don't even have to mean it. And he wouldn't do it. He actually fixed them soup. Boiling with fervency at rest in Christ. They took him. They were trying to talk him out of it the whole time. He's an old guy, really old at the time. They brought him in front of the emperor. I think he was actually maybe even in the Colosseum. And the emperor said, all you have to do is deny your faith in Jesus. Just deny him. And Polycarp was like, yeah, good luck with that. He said, my Savior has never done me wrong. Why would I deny him now? Jesus is king. They put him at a stake too. And if I remember correctly, again, um, the flames never touched him. They refused to touch his body. He just died. And when he died, a dove flew out of the flames, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. There's only some things you only get to see when you live a certain way for Christ. Some things are saved for people that Hebrews 11 says the world isn't worthy of them. Key number four to spiritual fervency is spiritual fervency matures and strengthens over time through a consistent commitment to ordinary ways of growing as a Christian. So last week we did the first three keys. Again, I would encourage you to go back and listen. So this is key number four. The fact that we grow, this spiritual fervency gains momentum, power, speed, force, intensity over time as we grow through ordinary means of growing as a Christian. That's why it's, just, it's more than just enthusiasm. It's more than pumping yourself up for, for Jesus. It's an intensity of kingdom-minded focus that has been seasoned over the years of walking with the Lord. And there are great examples of this in Scripture. If you look at Peter in the Gospels, the Gospels are the four um, books that start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're biographical sketches of the life of Jesus in, in ways that it's important for us to, to learn things about him as, as he did ministry. Um, and one of the things he did was he picked 12 guys to, to really disciple, to propagate the message of the Gospel when he disappeared into heaven. One of them was Peter. Peter was, is probably the most famous and he's a wild card. He's crazy. And if you look at his life in the Gospels, you have very, 
he's very endearing because he's so like us. He, he speaks without thinking. He jumps first and asks questions later. Um, he's the type of guy who jumps out of a, an airplane and tries to figure out how to build a parachute on the way down. He's just, he's wild. And he says some things that are so goofy. And Jesus would try to, Jesus was gently teaching him and Peter just did not get it so many of the times. He, oftentimes he did, and there's a lot of beautiful things about Peter. Um, they're more good than bad, but the bad ones are hilarious. One time in Matthew 17, Jesus, there's something called the transfiguration where he, he took Peter, James, and John. He's like, we're going to climb up this mountain. So they get to a point on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured, which means this is what Jesus would look like in heaven. <laughs> it says that his clothes got whiter than any bleach could get them on earth. Um, he was glowing with and radiating with glory. And Moses and Elijah showed up. They'd been dead for a really long time. Peter's freaking out. And he's like, um, I got an idea. Everybody shut up. I got an idea. We're going to build a couple. We're going to build like a tents or something for all three of you are going to have a place to stay because then maybe you'll stay up here. We can just live on this mountaintop with you guys. And he's, he's just figuring it out. And literally, the Father from heaven interrupts Peter. In Matthew 17, this cloud comes down, and you hear, they hear this thundering voice from heaven saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Stop talking, Peter. It's okay. You don't need to fill silence all the time. Just be quiet. Pay attention to what's happening. That was Peter in the Gospels. He was hilarious and very bold and very strong. But if you contrast that with Peter's letters, First and Second Peter, which were written 30 years later, you see a completely different character. Stable. Just as passionate. Calmer. Um thoughtful, conscientious with his words, poignant, compelling. This was a man whose faith had been stabilized and put deeply at rest in Christ through the Spirit. And that is the version of spiritual fervency that we are asking God to produce in us. Eugene Peterson credits German philosopher Nietzsche. Some people say Nietzsche, but I think the right way is actually Nietzsche. Um, with this phrase of a long obedience in the same direction. Nietzsche said that that was the key to a good life. Pick a job, do it forever, do it with contentment. That's the key to a good life. You'll get better and better at it. Let life fall in place around that. Or whatever it is that you're doing, do it for a really, really long time. It's a great way to grow spiritually. Just do a little bit for a really long time. A long obedience in the same direction. We used to say that a lot around here. It's the title of one of Eugene Peterson's books. And it's ironic that as dynamic as spiritual fervency is, as dynamic a thought as that is, it actually grows through something that's as painfully ordinary as plodding. Plodding is slow moving and unexciting. And if you read the New Testament letters, you see a, a, a family of words around this idea of plotting. Steadfastness, perseverance, faithfulness, doing the ordinary work of everyday life over time for a long time. We experience this 
even in the rhythm of gathering together consistently on Sunday mornings. They've been doing that since the church was born at Pentecost. You know that? This has been happening for 2,000 years. There's a slight and strange transition that happened in the United States, um, in other places too, where pastors started understanding their jobs as CEOs who were supposed to create a dog and pony show on Sunday mornings that would captivate the imaginations of everyone in attendance. And church became a production, and people walked in and said, entertain me. It's an ordinary means of growth. And sometimes you leave on Sunday morning and it doesn't feel like much happened. But you keep showing up. It requires a type of discipline, a long obedience in the same direction. Just being here feels kind of ordinary most of the time, doesn't it? And that's how it's supposed to be. Spiritual fervency grows over time in the mundane practices of reading and thinking about Scripture, being together with your church community, praying, sitting quietly, thinking about God, noticing the good things He's done for you. All that stuff, that's the good stuff. Key number five. In developing spiritual fervency, God will start with your life as it exists right now. He doesn't need you to change your circumstances. He just needs you to surrender your circumstances to him. I want to read you a, a sampling of verses from 1 Corinthians 7, starting with verse 17. It's in the bulletin if you have it. It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Isn't that an interesting thought? That's interesting. You could probably just think about that statement for few weeks. The Lord has assigned a life for you to live. And whatever life it is you're living right now, it's probably what he's assigned for you right now. And to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul's saying, I got a rule for everybody. I'm going to tell you what I tell everybody. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not Seek circumcision. <laughs> um, I, I, this is one of those areas I feel bad if you don't have a Bible background, and I'm with you, man. This, if you're in the early stages of exploring Christianity, it's like, what is going on here? Circumcision. What on earth is going on here? Like, where's the nearest exit? I need to get... What does that have to do with anything at all right now? That is... Very odd. And as hilarious and strange as it might seem, if you're first hearing this, circumcision was actually a way that God had previously identified his people. So if you grew up in a church hearing that, you're like, yeah, that doesn't seem strange at all. If you're first time hearing it, you're like, uh, that does seem strange. That seems very strange. So there are actually some good reasons that God... God did that. Alex is always like talking about not going into the weeds when, you, when you're preaching, and so I'm going to try not to do that right now. There's some very good reasons why God chose that as a sign, and we're not going to talk about it right now, but there's some interesting reading I could direct you towards. Um, but you know, the point that Paul had here was, the thing that you need to take away is, you no longer need to get circumcised in order to identify yourself as being God's family. In other words, you don't need to change your circumstances. 
If you become a Christian and you were already circumcised as a baby, as a Jewish baby, great. If you become a Christian and you weren't circumcised as a baby, great. No need to get circumcised now. That was really good news to the guys who started following Jesus late in life. Moving on, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. It's okay. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Likewise, he was, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. So you're a bondservant anyways. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So he's just giving a couple different examples to say, you don't need to change your circumstances to be disciples of Christ. And God doesn't need us today to change our circumstances in order to develop spiritual fervency. He can use whatever you're working with. Now, if you're a stinker and you're kind of contrarian like I am by nature, and I'm always like naming the one or two or three situations that disproves the statement that was just said, yeah, what about this case? Like, what about if you're a hitman? Do you need to change that circumstance? Yes, of course. If you're a drug dealer, you probably got to change the circumstance to be a follower of Christ. That's not what I'm talking about. So like all scripture, focus on the spirit of the statement, not the exceptions, because you'll find an exception to anything. What's the spirit of that? What's he saying? Listen, you don't become spiritually fervent by changing your circumstances. And we often think that the way I would just thrive as a human being if I just got out of this circumstance or changed this or did this, not how it works. You become spiritually fervent by seeing everything in your life and everything that happens to you as an invitation from Jesus to become more like him. If you have this mindset, no matter what your circumstances are, God will use those to grow you up in the faith and to help you become more spiritually fervent. If you don't have this mindset, then you're going to have a lot of wasted suffering because he won't use it if you don't offer it to him. And you'll keep going over the same thing in a million different lessons in a million different ways until you go be with him yourself and he tells you in person or until you get it through the Spirit's help. Do you hate your job? How is Jesus forming you through your job? Maybe he wants you to hate it for a little while, to have a category in your life of doing something that's not always easy, that requires a profound faith just to get through the day. Maybe that's the point. Unless you're a hitman, then you should quit. Another question you could ask is, how is Jesus bringing about his kingdom through my job? Maybe it's not about you. Maybe he has you there for a reason. He wants to bring about a different way of the kingdom in other people's lives around you. Maybe it's not only about you and your contentment. Because Jesus can use your life as it is right now to form you into his image and to bring about his kingdom. And we've said this before, Willard, Dallas Willard is one who originally said this statement. It's a great statement, very biblical. The most important part of your life is who you are becoming, not what you're doing. So start seeing all of your life as what is, 
okay, what I'm doing and what I'm going to do about this and how I'm going to relieve myself of the frustration of not liking this is secondary, really. The most important thing is, how is Jesus using this for my good and for others' good? The most important part of your life is who you're becoming, not what you're doing. So maybe you will get a new job, but that doesn't mean you waste what he's trying to do now with this job, right? Maybe he does have that for you. It doesn't mean you waste the lesson that he has in front of you. You know, I think back a lot to a, a job that I had first out of college. I was, this is going to be shocking to some of you. I've tried to hide this for a really long time. Um, I was actually a graphic designer. I worked at a company in, in Columbus. Um, and I'm used to hiding that because at the last church where I served, if they found that out, they, I would have to do, you know, all this graphic design stuff. And I don't really like, that's why I'm not doing it anymore. I don't really like it. So I, I don't, whenever I'm asked to do something like that, um, I do a really bad job at it because I don't want to be asked to do it anymore. It's a great strategy. Actually, that's a good way to get another job. Um, contradicting myself. So I think back a lot to this, this job that I had in Columbus. I was a graphic designer. I was actually a design manager. And so I would meet with clients. And um, I would meet with, uh, you know, the owner of the company would come with me sometimes. And we were at the Columbus airport. And while we were there, I felt a little bit, my pride and my ego was a little bit hurt because the boss said something about one of my suggestions in front of me to the clients. And I was a little bit miffed. I look back now and I see that my, my ego needed to die a little bit and God was using that for my good even though I hated it. I left. I quit. On the spot. It was a full-time job in Columbus. My mom and dad remember this probably. Full-time job in Columbus. I quit. I walked out of the meeting, out of the place. I went to a building beside the Columbus airport and I called my friend and he came and picked me up and I was done. I think about that a lot because I think Jesus had some stuff for me in that and I just hated it and was so offended and I just, I quit. I missed out. I had to go through some other painful situations because you know what, your circumstance changes but that lesson doesn't. He'll use whatever you're going through. What I'm saying is the parts of your life that are painful, that are causing you to suffer right now, this very moment even, might be the very things that God is using to deepen your faith in Christ. Jesus' younger brother agrees with me. James wrote the book of James in the Bible. And he says in James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Sounds like plotting. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying... Count it joy when you're facing sufferings and trials and let them finish the work in you. That's a good thing. It's producing something really deep and mature and strong in you. Let it finish its work. So is it possible that Jesus' younger brother ever witnessed Jesus do this? Is it possible that Jesus' younger brother ever witnessed Jesus suffer? Can you think of any type of suffering he might have seen his brother go through. While you're thinking about that, I'll read Hebrews 12:2, which says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross. James is saying for most of life's sufferings, we ought to be able to stay with it. Fervency comes out of that fertile soil. To live with an authentic sense of spiritual fervency, you must believe that God will use whatever circumstances you find yourself in as a way of leading you into the deeper reality of Jesus and his kingdom. Are you having troubles in your marriage? God can use that. Are you chronically ill or bedridden? God can use that. Are you wrestling with your faith? God can use that. God is so powerful, he'll take whatever's offered up to him and turn it to good. And the way that you talk with him about this is, God, how do you want to use this broken marriage? It's yours to do whatever you want with it. I trust you. God, how do you want to use my illness? It's yours to do whatever you want with it. I'm offering it up to you. How do you want to use my doubts in the season of wrestling with my faith? It's yours to do with whatever you want with it. I trust you. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to tell anybody else, but tell him and see what he does. As a, a good friend said to me, there is nothing in your life that God can't use when it is offered up to him. Now, I have a lot more to say about this topic, and it was supposed to be a two-week series, but we're going to have at least one more. Um, next week, Pastor Al is going to launch us into a new practice that we're going to be doing of being together in smaller communities. Um, a friend uh, was sharing with me this morning the importance of making sure that people don't fall through the cracks here. And it's really hard for one person to do that for everybody. Um, so we want to set up smaller communities where nobody falls through the cracks. Everybody has somebody here that sees them, that gives a rip about them, that loves them, that checks on them, that cares for them. I just can't do that for everybody. Our staff can't do that for everybody, but we can do that for each other, and that's kind of the way it was meant to be played out. So Alice is going to introduce us to hospitality nights next week, and then I'll, I'll finish up that mini-series the week after that, and then we're going to come back to this for one more teaching, because there's some things that I need to tell you about Scripture and the ways that it acts like dynamite when it gets into your heart and into your life. You'll see changes that you've never expected. So I want to give you some very practical ways to, to think about and to deal with Scripture, and that'll be in three weeks. So um, that's all I got. I don't have a good story to end it with or a dramatic ending. So why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.